0: This is Raw Cut.
1: Welcome to Life Burst. I'm Sarah.
0: And I'm Matt. And today, an insight into the life of a Vietnam veteran.
1: Yes, welcome to Life Burst with Matt and Sarah. And today, we have a Vietnam veteran, which I'm very excited about today, Phil. Thank you, Phil, for joining us here on Life Burst.
2: Thanks for letting me come along.
1: Now, take us back to the very beginning. Where did life start out for you, Phil?
2: Life started out for me in Marion. And if you ever go down Finnish Street in Marion, you can still see our original house, which was the old Marion Hotel. Okay. Which is heritage listed and I hope it never, ever gets knocked down. Mm. So as you turn off of Marion Road, turning to Finish Street, you'll see this lovely old building on your right. And built in 1851, 13 rooms and two cellars. And this is what I was uh, introduced to as a little bubby uh, on the 20th of March 1946. Okay. So are you
1: saying that you lived in there or was it actually a hotel and no. your parents owned it?
2: Oh, sorry. The licence was never in our name. The licensee moved up to the Flagstaff, mm-hmm. uh, Flagstaff Hotel, as I've been told, and, um, Mum and Dad took it over, and Mum wanted to run a boarding house. She said she thought she could make some money with a boarding house with thirteen rooms, you see, mm. and five kids well, then we only had three. there was um my brother and my older sister and me, and then two more came along after right, So we all had our own bedrooms, and it was just a monstrous playground on a yeah. an acre of land, a big triangle. So we owned all the land at the back and grandfather grew fruit trees there. And um, we had a shed to play in. We had cubby houses in the backyard. It was just a great time. And marrying in those days, you could stand in the middle of Finner Street and see one car an hour. It was just amazing. There was no traffic and incidentally, a lot of people didn't realise that Marion Road didn't always go all the way through. It stopped at the Sturt Creek. So it was just a far bigger job for what highways could do,
3: mm-hmm. is to
2: put that all in a concrete drain, which they did in 67, 68 when I was away. Uh, so Marion Road then goes through, but in my day, all the traffic came down Finnish Street, down Township Road down Norfolk Road Road and came back onto Marion Road. That's the bus, trucks, billy carts, everything. Mm. Uh, It was just impassable because there was a big fence there and a a wandering natural creek. So
0: even then it was a very quiet uh, part of the world, but Mm. you had all this land and this home to play in
2: with your siblings. Yeah, and fruit trees. We could just go and pinch Mm. our neighbours grapes. And and the kids used to come home from school and end up at my place and... Let's go down the creek. So we'd all go down the creek and uh, play around down the creek and go into the grapevines and have bunches of grapes this big. And Watermelons were growing not far away and the guys had leave the watermelons there that were tarted or sun damaged or something so we'd chop open watermelons. And it was just great. And we'd, uh, Well, anyway, that's when I started school, of course. And for the first couple of weeks I can remember Mum taking us in the car and then from there on I would ride my bike with my sister and then the days of the steam train, so we'd ride all the way from Marion Road up to Asker Park School and stand by the train line when the huge puffing billy would go past. Right. And they were monsters, you know, and you'd stand there, and you'd just shake because this huge train would go rattling past and then you'd carry on onto Ascot Park School.
1: So that's what you did for fun. You just didn't make the train. Yeah,
2: and then on the way home you wouldn't go straight home because you had to go and visit a couple of mates and go and dilly-dally down around the back streets and whatever. Um, And then uh, from Ascot Park School I went right through to grade 7 and then uh, from there um, went to Mitchell Park Boys Technical High School. Okay. Yeah. Which was... uh, you know, a bit of a culture change because uh, it was an all boys school. But my favourite subject was woodworking because mm-hmm. my dad was into wood. He used to make uh, doors, had furnace doors. Okay. But before that, they made caravans, furnace caravans. So my <laughs> great love of caravans started at a very early age. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to know more about the thirteen room hotel. That oh okay, we'll go back to that. Yeah, let's go back to that. What did you do with the other rooms that? weren't Oh well, that's when (laughs) Mum
2: did start a boarding house. Okay, because we had a big long passage down the middle Mm. of the house, where Dad would put in the petition here because he could knock up a quick petition, and say right that's for the there was a family there of uh, Ceylon people, Mm. Ceylonese. In back in those days, it was called Ceylon status. Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. And this husband and wife made the greatest curry you've ever tasted Mm -hmm. and I still can't replicate that curry. (laughs) Anyway, they invited us to tea and we'd have their curries and then we'd leave and walk down our passage. And we still shared the same bathroom, so we had to come through the door, go up to the bathroom because we only had one bathroom for many, many years until...
1: I'm sorry, there was 13 rooms and there was only one bathroom in the
2: whole. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then when they left, we had a, a single guy there. And then uh, Dad used to drink with him and get all the stories of Holland because he was Dutch. Hmm. And and eventually uh, people would come and go and I can't quite remember. Oh, and then, and then the toilet was out the back.
1: Okay. So and it wasn't that, an indoor toilet.
2: No, either. no, okay. no. Yeah. And it served like it was originally the ladies and the men's but then that became the the Borders and our toilet, mm. and you'd have a candle in there because it was all dark. Now, this is in the 50s, Yeah. and it was so primitive back then you can't believe it. You know, we had septic tanks, and and uh, oh, the bus used to come past, and the bus stops right out the front of of uh, now it's see, we used to call it 8 Finner Street Marion, but now it's 6 Finner Street Marion mm-hmm. for some reason. We lost two numbers, anyway. Um, as Marion's, you know, a great historic place. You Mm. can just drive around all the back streets in that little area um, where there was quite a regular little community, like Mm. one shop, one telephone box and a grain store and um, if you get into the back streets you can see it it out where they, now it's all, and very few back streets Mm. because it was all market gardens. And the market gardens didn't like selling off anything. So they thought, we're just going to keep this bit. And so we drive around Marion now. Where's all the back streets? There isn't any. Yeah. Because they've lost them all. Yeah. But,
0: Certainly a different era to what Marion's known for now. Yes. In, in, it's a part of Adelaide that is a shopping hub. And yes. uh, it's uh, yeah central, but
2: uh, a hugely different world. Yes. Anyway, that was the, the Marion that I grew up in and peddling all the way down to Ascot Park Primary School, which I've still, I still have probably two friends that were in primary school with me. Hmm. Uh, One I don't see that often, but the other one I see quite regularly. So, with the
1: creek, what type of things did you get up to when you were in the creek?
2: Exploring a creek at 10 years old. Amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. We just go in shoes, no boots. We didn't have boots, so we just go and come home with sodden socks and, and you know, it was certain places you couldn't go any further past. It's uh, street bridge, you know, that was a no-no because you were getting away away. And then down the end of the street was my good friend Roly, who I still see today. I saw him on the weekend, uh, you yeah, know, a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, uh, and we'd either be down at Roly's place investigating the creek down there or come up to our place and wander up but then it used to flood, and when it flooded, we'd all get panicky because the water would come almost up to the hotel, mm-hmm. the finished Street in and uh, Jacob Street intersection. Because you wouldn't believe the water—it was just sheeted everywhere. From um, used to come over at about the intersection of Sturt and Marion Road and start there because that's a bit of a low point, mm. and you couldn't get past, so you had to turn around and come back again. But, you know, now it's in a concrete drain. It can mm. handle a lot of water. But uh, in those days it couldn't handle. And it would, that would stand, he'd sit up there for a couple of hours thinking, the creek's coming up, the creek's coming up. <laughs> but it never actually got to our door. Just enough, you know, you could paddle out and then you could see it getting deeper all the time. Yeah. It was And market gardens all around. We could go and get tomatoes over the road. Oh, the Scouter was over the road too, which I did join the Scouts, the Cubs and the Scouts.
0: Mm-hmm. I, love, I love this picture of a very different world in yeah, your painting. But, but some would remember, <laughs> some of our uh, uh, viewers and listeners, uh, yeah. but uh, very different. Well, we're only up to the beginning of your story. Uh, we're chatting to Phil. This is Life Burst, and we'll be back right
3: after this. If you like what you're hearing, please write a review of this podcast on your podcasting app or you can share this on social media. Thanks for joining
0: us on Life Burst. We are chatting to Phil, talking about growing up around Marion in South Australia and a very different place it was back mm. then. Mm. But you moved on to uh, trade school and uh, pursued some carpentry.
2: Well, not quite that quick. All right. Take <laughs> oh, okay, that. okay. Take okay, so that. I went to Mitchell Park Boys Technical High School. Okay, yes. And uh, Mr Mitchell as the name applied, same as the the, the district, um, was the headmaster. But uh, then I came home at 14, I think I might have been 14, and uh, to mum saying, your father's had a heart attack.
4: Mm.
2: Oh, oh, my God. You know, And I didn't understand. I thought it was a disease. And dad's in bed, you know, as you'd be. And I said, uh, I can't come in. And he said, no, come in. I said, I might catch it.
4: <laughs>
2: and he oh, said, they're... you don't catch heart attacks, come in. So then I, I sat on the bed and talked to him. He said, yeah, my heart's not good. He said, I've got to take it easy for a while. And take it easy if he did. Uh, and then Mum decided, well, this is not going to bring us any income in. So she decided to open a shop in the front of that house that we're still in Finner Street. So if you look very closely, you'll see that there was a a rather large window put in um, because we had to have some income coming in. So mum started a dry cleaning agency in there and she was always at work at mum's, you know. So she's uh, setting up this shop and dad found that he could work in a lighter job rather than work at furnace lifting because they were doing jail jail doors at that particular time because there was a... A big expansion in jails around South Australia, so the doors were like that thick and very heavy. So he wanted a, a lighter job, but he had a friend over the road at a place called Shopfitting Industries, and Shopfitting Industries made roller skates, apart from everything else that we made. And then he said to me, because uh, he went back to work, he he had a rest for about six months, I think, and then he went back to work in this lighter job, working for a chap by the name of Horry Weepers. Great guy and um, uh, making roller skates, but out in the factory, if we had one little area. And oh, then he said to me, You're coming to work because we need to get you working. Pat's already working, Len's working. That's the older two. So you're still 14, 15. i moved on to 14 and a half. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm only 14 and a half when I started work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did three, uh, I left in October of my second year. So that was the end of school, start work. What am I going to do today? I'm coming, you're coming to work with me. And it was as quick as that. It was after the long weekend of October. hmm And uh, packed my lunch and off we went to work together. And because uh, Dad was driving and those days you couldn't get your heart repaired like I had done. I'll tell you that later. Anyway, uh, so there I am and I can get my little hand in the boots. So the roller skating, they had a proper frame on them, they were professionally made, and I had to get my hand down to bolt the plate the bottom of the sole of the Rosset. Mm, sort of important job. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but other things, you know, like I learnt to do other things. And he would show me how to make these rollers. So we're only working in a room half this size. And we would produce 30 a week maybe. And they all went into John Martin's at 20 pound of pair. And, uh, and then the boss would say to me on a Friday, um, Phil, I want you to put 50 ladies and 50 gents in the boot of my... Fairlane, where are you going? I had to call him Mr. Weepers, not Murray. Oh, no, that was an owner. Well, I did call him Murray, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I'd pack all these in, in the huge boot. I could get in the boot and he'd drive to Mount Gambier and put on a roller skating in Mount Gambier or Mount Barker or somewhere here, somewhere there because he owned the Elizabeth skating rink, but he needed to get more income in because he just loved making money. Anyway, uh, he brought in uh, the skating to a lot of small country towns where he would go off and someone else would run the skating rink at Elizabeth because a lot of the Fridays and Saturdays, and this this went on for two or three years, that we would drive and there's no traffic on the road. You could get to Elizabeth in three quarters of an hour Mm -hmm. whereas nowadays it takes you an hour and a quarter. Yeah. And uh, we would drive up to Elizabeth, Dad and I, and we'd pick up Mrs Weepers on the way uh, because Harry was going the skating that way and we'd take her up there and then uh, put everything uh, into place. But we didn't have to take the skates up there because he had a stock of skates up there. Mm-hmm. So he had, I don't know, he must have had a, seven or 800 pairs of skates to his, uh, that he could use and off we'd go to Elizabeth and then we'd skate all night and I used to pay <laughs> until I said that Horry one day, because Horry was a huge meal
1: Really tall. Mr. Yeah. Weeper,
2: do I have to pay because I'm working in the skate room? Who's making you pay? Yeah. I've always paid. <laughs> I've always paid 50 cents. Oh, it might have been 50 cents. This was back in 1960, 62, 63. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, no, you don't have to pay. So then I'd walk in, I didn't have to pay. <laughs> but it was great. And his son worked there as well, Alan, hmm. and Alan and I are still good friends. Alan's a bit older than me. So we had these games that used to get out on the skating rink and he'd push me along and I can't remember what we used to call it. Anyway, I'd be crouched down and Alan would be pushing me at top speed and we're going round, like you know, we've got to beat everyone else, hmm. and we'd get out in front Alan would keep pushing me and I'd be down and my legs are killing me because you're crouched in that position.
1: Yeah, the whole time. And
2: you come round the corner and... Tumble over. Oh, God. Yeah. And, you know, from one, two nights skating, a week, they'd someone to break their ankle or break a leg or break a. Horry'd pick them up, take them to the hospital <laughs> and get them patched up. It was a great time. <laughs> yeah. That Elizabeth Skating Rink is no longer there. Right. And it got uh, The swimming pool was next door and they bulldozed it, and made the swimming pool bigger. Mm. But uh, that was. So much fun. But apart from that, we weren't only making skates. We were doing shop fitting. Right. So we would go into town and we would work in Rundle Mall or well, Rundle Street in those days or somewhere. And every shopping centre, as they were building shopping centres around the districts,
4: mm-hmm. we'd
2: get the delicatessen and the chemist shop or this, that and the other because there was about 12 people there. So we'd make the counters, do all the shelving, I was cutting glass. He'd have, every time he did a shop front, he'd salvage the glass and take back huge sheets of glass to the factory, lay them out on a table, and I would be cutting glass at oh, probably 16 then, making a terrible job of it, mind you, <laughs> and breaking off these pieces of glass. And I'd say, these shouldn't be cut by me, you know, because we couldn't do the edging. We didn't have an edging machine. <laughs> I'd sandpaper all the edges and card racks. Have you ever built a card rack with all those tiers in it? Yeah, okay. So we used to, and they'd always be the apprentices because there were several other apprentices there at the same time. And there was just so many things we made, you know, shelving, counters. And it was the grounding for everything I do today. I did all come back to me thinking, oh, yeah, we used to make a counter like this or we used to make card racks like this. Because we had jigs, we'd make up jigs. You didn't make them by hand, you'd make up the jigs so you'd work back to front. In the back of the card rack, screwing it all together, and then had to be painted. So we had a painter that would spray paint them, or, or if not. Dad had spray. When he came out of the skate room, he'd paint as well. And so, the welder. So there was a fair bit of on-the-job oh, training for all everything. of this, I imagine. I learnt to weld. <laughs> yes. I learnt to use the guillotine. we had a guillotine that could cut up, and then we started covering the the jail doors. Can you imagine a a door that took four people to lift? And we'd put it up on trestles and then we'd cut the sheet of metal. Then we'd fold all corners, except for the last one, you had to sort of half do that and, and tap them in. And they were all soldered all the way around. So that, And then in the hatch, you cut a hatch out. The jobs we used to do, mm. it was incredible.
0: Sounds like you've left your mark on a fair bit
2: of South Australia in, <laughs> yeah, in those
4: early
2: it. days. In jail doors. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh and, yeah. And and roller then, skates. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't get away much, like out of the out of the city. We did most of our work in the city in the suburbs, because at that time they were building Parkholm Shopping Centre, Welland Shopping Centre, Marion Shopping Centre, uh, Ang- St. Oh, yeah. Um and um, we seemed to get the deli and the chemist shop in each one, and that became very interesting. And then eventually, you yeah, know, it. It came to the time when I decided, I think I'll leave. (laughs) I'd finished my apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. I'd done everything I wanted to do. I had my car and I'm thinking, I need a bit more spark in my life. So that's when I decided to join the Army.
0: Okay.
1: Right. Okay. Great,
0: Great place to pause. That is. What an adventure so far. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes, here on Life Burst with Matt and Sarah. We'll be back straight after this.
3: Hey, did you know this show is available in video too? You can find it at rawcut.com.au. This
1: is Life Burst with Matt and Sarah. Today we are chatting with Phil and we've got up to the part of his story where he wanted a bit more spark in his life. Mm. So he joined the army.
2: So the family had grown up to this point. Uh, We now had two younger sisters, Heather and Sandra. So there's five of us now. Anyway, uh, the shop's not going too well and Dad's back at work full time and everyone's earning money apart from Sandra and Heather and Sandra. Um, And uh, so I decided, well, I had to register. I'm not sure how I registered or whether I did or didn't. Uh, but I got a little card back to saying at the point uh, your number had not been drawn or whatever it said. I've still got the card at home. I we'll have to get that one day. Um, at the point at this point of time, you will not be called up. You're not wanted for national service. Mm-hmm.
1: So the government sent you this card little
2: card to say, "Oh," and Dad read it and he said, "Oh, good, you're not you're not going to the army." And I said, "Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do then, because this time we're in a bit of friction when you ate nineteen 20. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. You know?
2: And uh, I said, I don't know yet. Anyway, I rang up the recruiting office. And I did that from a call box because I didn't want to use the phone at home. Mm. And they said, Oh, come in. Come into Peary Street and we'll have a talk. So I came, went into Peary Street on a Sunday morning. And uh, he said, um, the recruiting major or whatever he was, so you want to volunteer? I said, Yeah, I think I'll do that. And he said, All right, no worries. We'll put you through a medical and you can. Go and join the Army. And you you can go in with the National... I said, it's only two years, it? He said, yeah, it's only two years. You could do three or six if you wanted. I said, no, I think I'll only do the two, thanks very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so i told trot- I haven't told them. I haven't told him a word. So I trundled off into town on a Saturday morning and went in for a medical and they said, oh, yeah, you've got a bit of, little bit of a hearing, uh, that's, that thing in the air. But But, uh, no, you'll be fine. So... Um, Then I came home and told Dad. He said, you what? Mm. I said, I'm joining the Army. He said, don't you know there's a war on? I said, what war? Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I have read a bit about Vietnam. He said, uh, so you're going to go off and get killed? No, I'm not going to go off and get killed, Dad. He did not like that. Uh, You know, I love my dad, but he was a... A fair, strong drinker and a, he smoked heavy. And,
1: so you're saying that you went off and volunteered.
2: Yeah.
1: But, and you didn't know that there was war.
2: Oh, I sort of. Okay. I sort of. Okay. But, um, and I wasn't quite, uh, I wasn't 21, that's right. I was still 20. Yeah. And uh, at this time he's saying, you can't join up because you're not 21 yet. You can't, you've got to do as I say before you turn 21. I said, I'll be 21 in March. So, you know, I'm going to go. There was a lot of opposition, a lot of, yeah, Mm. arguments. Yeah. Uh, Because Mum wouldn't say much at all, but Dad was pretty vocal. And I I loved him to death, but, gee, you know, I want to do what I want to do, Dad. I want to see a bit of Australia. He said, you'll see more than that. Mm. Anyway, um, that year uh, his brother had come over from New South Wales and he wanted a hand, this was before I joined the army, this was back in the middle of the year in 66. So he was in the army in Darwin and he got injured in Darwin. Anyway, he wanted someone to come with him to get one of his His eldest son had broken down in Kalgoorlie and he wanted to bring him back. So he said, will you come to with me to Kalgoorlie? And I said, yeah, I'll come with you. So we drove to Kalgoorlie at Easter time. So we left on the Friday And we were back on the Monday. We went all the way to Kalgoorlie, picked up Ray and come back. So that gave me a chance to talk to Arthur. And I found out a bit more about the army. And he said, well, if you're going to do it, you're going to, he lived in Blacktown, New South Wales. So anyway, I talked to Dad and I said, I've talked to Arthur. And Arthur said, it's not that bad. (laughs) Anyway, so I end up going to Pakapunyul in 1967.
1: Where's Pakapanya?
2: Pakapanya was in Victoria. Okay. Everyone knows where Pakapana lives. We do now. Okay. We do now. <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: It's I don't know, north of Melbourne somewhere. But everyone went there to a huge camp which is called 2RTB, Second Recruit Training Battalion. So there's hundreds of these young men, and we all got in a plane at Adelaide Airport and flew to Mangalore. Mangalore was a little like a parafield.
1: Had you been in an airplane before?
2: No, that was my first trip in a plane. The <laughs> Paka friendship all the way to to uh, Mangalore.
1: Were you excited to get in the plane? Oh yeah! And
2: then you get in the back of a truck with all these other guys, and they say, "Oh, when did you volunteer? I didn't volunteer. When did you? Do-? I didn't volunteer. <laughs> oh, I better keep your mouth shut."
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway, as I as I got into our little bit of Paka I got to know one of the people it was. Um, Happens to be Matthew Nix's father, Dennis Nix. We're very good mates at this point in time, and everyone knows who Matthew Nix is. And I still talk to Dennis today. And another guy I went to high school with, um, which I sort of didn't, I'd lost him for a bit, and then he came back into my life uh, through the veterans. But, uh, yeah, so we got fully trained up and came home for Easter and uh at break at Easter, and then back to Paropannyo, and then from there um i've going to go i got infantry, that's right. you put in your name for catering, tankies, whatever you want, and you don't get them you get infantry because that's where they're going to put me. Mm. so I'm thinking, this is not looking too good because I'm going to uh, infantry anyway at at the par- at the march out parade, I'm saying um, I've got a sore groin Dad, because he came over, but mum and dad came over. And he said, well, what's the matter? I says, I don't know. I've got a lump in my groin. And he says, I think you've got a hernia Cause he looked at it. He said, yeah, you've got a hernia. You you better stay here. I said, I'm not staying here. I'm going to Singleton. I've got the car all packed, ready to go to Singleton. And he said, hmm, you better tell him about that. So I did. When I got up to Singleton, which is way above Sydney, hmm. it's like it's two oh no, 200 k's north of Sydney, somewhere there, so myself and another guy drove up to Singleton and then the first couple of days we had a health inspection and I said, what's this, sir? And he said, hmm, you've got a hernia, son. You're on light duties. I'm not going anywhere. So uh, all the other guys went off and started their infantry training. They all went to three battalion. I've been pulled out of it the- and another guy broke his arm. Someone else broke their leg. So we're three of us, three musketeers. And we couldn't do a thing. So I'm sitting in the orderly room every day and the sergeant in the orderly room, he said, how long you going to wait for the operation? I said, oh, about two weeks. He said, right. He says, I need you to do some jobs for me. He said, you can go and get me a slab of beer, go and keep my dry cleaning. <laughs> in my car? I said, he said, no. He said, see that Land Rover out there? Do you reckon drive that? I said, oh, sure I can. With my mate at a Land Rover, see? Oh. So he said, right, show me how you drive it. So I jumped in with him and he drove around the parade ground. He said, right. He said, this will be like gold to you. Don't lose it. And i got this little wallet that says I can drive a Land Rover. Mm. Mm. So. I,
1: why is that important or is that going to come That out is very important. On? How? Why?
2: Very important because. Um, Eventually, I went to Canungra because I got, uh, i tell you, I had the operation. Yeah, so
1: okay. Sorry. I had the operation. I made you jump ahead. <laughs> I had the Fine. operation.
2: And then it was, I had to convalesce at South Head, which is Watson's Bay. Mm. So I convalesced for 12 weeks while well, this huge cut was mm. here to here, mm. uh, repaired itself. So I went out to Athens every weekend because of Blacktown, you know, it was pretty good. I had three boy cousins out there and uh, drive back with the to Blacktown on a Friday and come back on a Monday and I sorted mail it. Well I waited to convalesce. then I went on to a um, uh, went on to finish my infantry training at Engleburn and because um, I've had the operation I'm all set ready to go and then I put on draft that means you're going to Vietnam so it's getting later in 67 It's getting about october 67 because I've been to Canunggra everyone goes to Canunggra that's the up in queensland mm. to do your battle efficiency course and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. so that um look up on the board and is if you've got a license you can upgrade to a truck license Yeah. Trucked there a license we yeah. so i got in i went to the uh, the guy that was in charge and i said i can i got a driver's license can i upgrade he said yeah sure we want drivers over there you mm. know you know you're going to Vietnam. yeah well i know that now <laughs> <laughs> yeah. anyway I drove down to Wollongong back around Liverpool and signed me off as a truck driver. And now I've got a double licence. I can drive a, a sedan and I can drive a truck. Okay.
1: Fantastic. <laughs> we'll be back to hear what happens next in Phil's story here on Life First with Matt and Sarah.
3: In Australia, juvenile arthritis affects one in 1,000 children. It's a silent yet common condition. Kids Arthritis is here to help support these children and their families. To help them, go to kidsarthritis.org. This has been a raw cut community service announcement. This is Life's Bursts where
0: we love to share local stories with you and Phil is sharing his at the moment Phil, you've uh, signed up uh, and you're finding yourself now with your, a licence to drive a truck and uh, where did where did things take you from there?
2: Thanks, Matt. Uh, well, it's very unusual to get a licence when you're an infantry rifleman but as luck had it, I got it and um, so now I'm on draft to go to Vietnam and there was a big Tet Offensive. You'll read about the Tet Offensive. I in have no
1: Gen- idea What's, what Gen- oh,
2: it was meant, so? Where the Viet Cong were doing a lot of attacking in Saigon. So uh, no one was going over there for a while because everything happened in Saigon, you know, had to land there and all that. Mm -hmm. So it was was delayed a little bit. Not that I'm edging to go, but you're waiting around playing cards at the back of the tent. Anyway, from there uh, we got on a plane and not everyone goes by ship. The battalions went by ship. There's a few things that need sorting out because every Tuesday Qantas had a Big white bird ready to go. So, every Tuesday there was the odd suds and buds that all jumped on a plane with male stewards, mind you, no girls on the plane. And we're all going to fly off to Tonsonut. Tonsonut Airport, if you know, is in Saigon. And uh, we flew via Darwin to pick up a couple of others and then flew to Kuala Lumpur. I think that was for refueling. And then on to Tonsonut Airport. So it's the most amazing place. You're looking out the windows and all you can see is jet planes. There's three parallel strips at the busiest airport in the world at the time. Mm. So they've got a jet taken off alongside of you to go and do a sortie over somewhere and helicopters and everything. So we got off the plane and the place has been bombed, you know. You're looking at the (laughs) the reception and and it's got holes in the walls and Mm. And then we waited for our plane because everyone's got to go somewhere different. Mm-hmm. All the ones that got on the plane with us, honey, half of them went to where I was going. So I'm going to a place called Nui Dat, which is the main base, and um, and I get another plane, a caribou this time. And you're sitting on the floor in a caribou, and it's fifty k's, sixty k's, I can't remember, and uh, landing. There's dust flying everywhere and whatever and you're on a, in the middle of the military base now.
4: Mm-hmm. So
2: you get on the truck and with several other people. So I went over as a reinforcement. I didn't go out as a battalion. So First Australian Reinforcement Unit, 1ARU. And the most interesting place, because the base, take this oval, well, yeah. we're right down here, and everything else is happening up there. So they expanded in the year before, so that was all a bit new down here. So we had three battalion alongside of us and one AAU. So being a Rio, you're going to go to fill someone's place, someone that's been shot, someone's been injured, someone's Mm. been killed. So (laughs) this is going to be a bit of a, Mm. you know, a real culture shock. At
1: any time, did you feel frightened? No. Scared? No. Just full of adrenaline?
2: No, I'm full of adrenaline. I'm 21 years old. I've had my 21st birthday because I forgot to tell you that. I had my 21st birthday at Puckapunyum. So now I'm moving into my 22nd year Mm -hmm. in 1968. So, yeah, it's February and uh, I'm going in and everyone has to stay at one ARU for a fortnight to climatise and to be told what to do, what not to do, this, that and the other. So I'm sitting in my tent and I started write letters and everything because that's how you communicate in those days, wrote letters. And um, someone come in, you're a private screw, Yep, OC wants to see you. Cross that building over there. And we had little buildings, little buildings, and tents for what we slept in, but little main buildings that were put up by the carpenters
4: mm-hmm. as
2: offices and that. Um, I see on your paperwork, you've got a driver's license. I said, Yeah. He said, Right, I want you to stay here. Is that all right with you? Yeah, I think I'll stay here. Why? What am I going to do? He said, Well, we've got two Land Rovers, you might know, three Land Rovers out there and two trucks just right next door. And I said, Okay. He said, I want you to stay as a driver. We can't get enough drivers mm. because we're here. And this is five kilometres long by four kilometres wide. Mm. So you've got to take the OC to a meeting, you've got to get water, you've got to get food, you've got to get the movie for the night, you've got to get letters, the mail. So I got walked across and lo and behold, there's a friend of mine who you know we've been in the, in the army. <laughs> so he was at Kanunga with me and I said, oh, good day.'" Yeah, you too. He said, oh, right. He says, uh, I'm glad I've got you because I'm going home in about a week's time. He'd done his six months or something, but he was going home to get, on passionate reasons, to get divorced, something like that. Anyway, he ticked off and then I joined these crew of drivers. There was only five of us, mm-hmm. but we had about 70, 60 or 70 people uh, with the cooks and the OCs and the trainers and, and everybody and the Rio's. Which were going out at a rate of sometimes eight a day, because we had three battalions to supply. So we had three battalion, one battalion, and seven, I think. Yeah, because they were changing it, and not all at the same time. They were changing at different times.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, oh, this is going to be an interesting job. So they, I got to know my way around the camp, and uh, my each day. Someone would have to go and get the water, and the water included meant getting the back of the truck, throwing all the jerry cans from the toilet blocks and the shower block, which is just a windy toilet, a windy shower above your head, pour water in it, held up by a rope, right. lower it down, pour the water, pull it up, tie it up, have a bit of a shower. And The cooks had to have 10 jerry cans a day, the IOC has to have ears, and this, that, and the other. So, um. That was one of the jobs. That would take a couple of hours. So you'd have to get someone to give you a hand to, and we'd go down by the, right alongside the strip where you watch the planes come and go. You'd be bousing all these jerry cans mm. and that was your water for mm. 70 people. And then the mail run. Then you'd take the cook to get uh, the food because he'd have to go to his store and say, right, we're going to get this, this and this. And our laundry was done outside the camp at a place called Berea down the road five k's away. And it would be your job or my job to go to Berea, but you'd have to have someone with you. So you'd have the Q Store staff. He'd say, "Right, I'm coming with you." And you've got two SLRs, a self-loading rifle, sitting alongside you, driving on the wrong side of the road, with no door, no seat belt, and just a steering wheel to hang onto. And he had the bar in front to hang onto because they didn't have seat belts. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because this only would have hindered you getting out the, the vehicle right, in a hurry, yes. and the open back. You throw all the laundry in there, and take it to a particular contract. You'd have, you knew where you had to go. You're mm. told where to go, and then the main. Uh, after you did the laundry run, you'd have a few guys wanting you to get boxes of cigarettes. So you go to the marketplace as well, buy the cigarettes. Then you get some ice for the bar. Ice was great. You'd have a block of ice, and in there was a, a bit of straw and a bit of weed and everything. It was hanging out of these blocks of ice because you didn't eat this stuff. Right. This is purely for the grog. Uh, yeah. Keep yeah. cool. <laughs> and uh, so you'd have all the laundry and that would get wet from the blocks of ice and oh. you'd bring them back and the ice was sliding everywhere. But you had, you had your, other, your other man alongside of you. You couldn't yeah. send him at the back. No. So you're trying to wedge everything and oh, <laughs> I, hand yeah. But we did lots of jobs like that. Right. We We had... Guys at an outpost called Apsui Inay and Dat Do and places that you've never heard of before in your life. And we had to supply them as well because they were out there in an outpost watching. But when the rice crop came on, the Viet Cong would come along to the head of the... And if you didn't give him his rice, he'd shoot you. So there was the outpost all around the place and we were responsible. It was called the Mats, the military aid and I don't know, I can't remember what Matt's meant, but we had to go out there and we'd take two, uh, two Land Rovers and machine guns and flap jackets those days with helmets on. But going to Berea, you're just in your normal greens. And I don't know how I didn't get shot because we'd be driving through the village, driving to, and then Bung Tower was 25 k's away and there was often, we had to take someone down to Bung Tower I had to take a guy down there. And we had a couple of UD, unauthorised discharge, one guy got shot. Mm. And I took him to his court case. I had his lieutenant here, who was his representative. I had his mate in the back and me. We drove all the way to Town, and they all got out. And I said to the lieutenant, who am I going back with? I've got no escort now. He said, didn't you organise that, soldier? Mm-hmm. And I said... I didn't know I had to. Sir, mm. he said, "Well, you better get going." Mm. So they all got out. Three of them got out: the prisoner, this guy, and that guy. And I drove back all that twenty-five k's by myself yeah. with one rifle. And I was thinking, "This might be the end of you, three <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, oh, and then I did go out on two operations. There's, if you ever got a minute to read the minefield of Vietnam. In nineteen sixty-six, this colonel he wanted to put in a minefield. So it was causing a lot of troubles because it was fenced off, it was a kilometer wide, and we could see it as this big. And so we went out there for a week's operation and we're going to we're the backup for the tankies. Because you can't go out and try and remove a minefield without infantry people watching. Cause you're their backup. So they went in with a tank. And they tried to knock out these mines. It was called the monster and it dragged an dray front and back and they're going to sweep all this area. Mind you, I can only see this and this. And they're going to do that as an experiment to see that they could knock it out because they wanted to get rid of it. Because the girls were going in at night time, climbing over the fence and then going along with a twig to find the mines. This was a barrier. They were trying to stop the Viet Cong from moving to a place called the Long Mountains. So they'd come in along the beach, come in at the village of Dat Doe, and then they'd move across country. So then they'd hit the minefield. But the girls used to go in so and move. Uh, we'll, pause, we'll
0: pause it there. It does sound like a, a problem. So we'll, <laughs> we'll find out how we uh, that was resolved and your part in that uh, right after this. We're chatting to Phil. This is LifeBird.
3: Raw Cut is also on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter with the handle AU.
1: This is Life Burst with Matt and Sarah. We're chatting with Phil and we have uh, left everybody on a cliffhanger mm. with a story that you were sharing with us. The girls go through with a tweak to find
2: mines. Yeah. Mine. How did they well, work? they were bamboo shafts that they'd prod around and find a mine and then lift it out. These things blow you apart. Mm. Yeah, I was about and, to say. And uh, take them and put them on a track. So you'd find in the histories that 60 guys got killed through those mines. Yeah. And uh, wow. and they were trying to get rid of them. So what we could see was this and this. It was 12 kilometres long and it took years to get rid of it. A mm. uh, big fence each side. But anyway, uh, that was part of the sad part. Um, there was lots of other things happening. Look up the minefields of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Look up the Battle of Coral Balmoral mm-hmm. because that's mm-hmm. something the Vietnam Veterans Federation run, which we ran last week, in our, our hall at Marion. Please look them up and get to know that about the twenty-six people, men that we lost in a fortnight, wow. mm. and uh, yeah. that's a very moving ceremony we do. Add, um we've inherited that one as something that we will always do at uh, the Vietnam Veterans at Norfolk Road, Marion. But anyway, coming back, I came back from Vietnam. Yes. Yeah, so how did you come back? Different. Oh, mm. I'd, I'd gone from a boy to a man. I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, and very wary of someone dropping a pit of wood behind you and putting their foot on it, making it go bang, and then you jump, you mm-hmm. know, because we were, you know, treated like terrible when we came back. I went to the RSL and I was told, that you didn't go to a real war. What do you mean I didn't go to a real war? So I put the beer on the counter and walked out. Mm-hmm. I, I got challenged twice. And I really took it to heart. And the people that have challenged me are probably dead by now. And I had someone tell me that I never really went to Vienna. I said, hang on, did you, do I get these out of a wheat pick packet and put my medals in front of him? I haven't seen that guy for a couple of years and he's still around. But he'll get his just desserts one day. Anyway, I came back and then uh, Mum said to me, oh, we've got to go to see your back, son. And yeah, well, I'm certainly back, Mum.
1: <laughs> I told you I'd come back a yeah, lot. <laughs> yeah, I came
2: back all right, not a problem. I didn't get PTSD. I got a bit of skin cancer and, you know. Because we drove around with no shirts on. Yeah. Anyway, Mum said, oh, we got a cabaret tonight because it's December '68, so we got uh, a cabaret on tonight for Christmas. You going to come? There'll be some girls there." So I said, "Yeah, I'll come." So I came. I went along to the Ranella Hotel, which is still there today, the Crown Inn, and I met my wife.
1: Well, I'm sure she didn't come your wife straight away. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay, so what did you no. do? Look across the room at yes. each other.
2: Yes, and- we danced together oh, and. And uh, uh, there was, she was with her sister and her girlfriend and um was love at first sight. Well, because I had a brand-new car because I bought a, a little <laughs> master car. So it <laughs> anyway, was love at
1: first sight for you and the I, car? Or? I
2: took the three of them home and I said, I'm going to take one of you out. You better make up your mind because I'll be back on Monday night. Because <laughs> okay. I'm working, moving into this huge family that I didn't know at the time. Uh, my mother, mother-in-law, and father-in-law had nine children, wow. and uh, and Jill was the eldest. She's she's got a twin, so uh, anyway, I came back and Jill was standing on the veranda, and I thought, oh, I knew it'd be you. So we, <laughs> we went to the drive-in, and uh, and then we we dated for a couple of weeks, and then I said uh, we were actually working in a jeweler shop in town, and I'm thinking I'm pricing a, a an engagement ring with the jeweler <laughs> while we're doing the shop fit out. <laughs> uh, Archer and Holland it was. Anyway, I came back and I couldn't get this ring until the day after St. Uh, Valentine's Day. So it's only February 69 by next time. Right, yeah. We've yeah. known each other for six weeks. And she thought I was going to engage, get engaged on the oh, Valentine's, Valentine's Day. day. Oh. But I got it the next day. I raced into town after work and I, I said, where's that ring? Oh, here, it's ready now because I had to size it. And uh, so I gave it to her the next day. How did you so, do
1: it? How, how did you propose? Oh, we
2: went to Windy Point, as you do, mm-hmm. and then I proposed up at Windy Point. Fancy? Nice. Yes, it was. It was very cool. And she obviously said yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we decided we'd get married on the exact day that we met, on the 20th of December, Aww. and we told mother-in-law. And she said, that's five days before Christmas, I said so. <laughs> Because we didn't really celebrate Christmas that much. With nine kids, you'd a Christmas huge. So, anyway, I slept over many a night at their place. I'd slept on the lounge and I had this dog, big sugar dog, big black thing, and it came and kicked me off and tried to put a, a bum right where my feet were. <laughs> <laughs> but the family's great and we all still love each other. Peter's uh, passed on, of course, but Freda, that's my mother in law's name, Freda. She's ninety four and in a nursing home. Not quite ninety four. Next next month ninety four.
0: And she's still alive. So, so when, I have to get her to In the last couple of minutes. Take us through life yeah. from from there to now, uh, in a in a whirlwind.
2: Right. Well, okay. So we've got three kids, yeah. three marvelous kids, we've got Kath at forty two. 41, so we can.
1: I'm sure they want you to share the age of them. <laughs> oh, okay.
2: And the twin, now we've got twins. So we've got a boy oh, girl yeah. twin, uh-huh. the same as their mothers, the boy girl twins. Yeah. A, so we got Deb and Brenton, and uh, they're 48, 49, <laughs> 49. Come on. Too seven.
1: bad, kids. <laughs> Everyone now knows and, how old you uh, are.
2: <laughs> We're still, and seven grandchildren uh, from 12 up to 22. And we're having a ball and we're caravanning and I'm metal detecting and I'm <laughs> doing things for the Vietnam veterans. Yes, and... tell
1: us about that. At Marion, you meet together. So you right. obviously found a group yeah. of, of people that yeah. are like-minded.
2: Vietnam Veterans Federation, Yeah, which uh, is alongside of the Marion RSL where that guy told me I never went to a real war. Mm. That's over there and I'm here. Okay. And uh, we had to relocate because... When the train line went under Morfitt Road, we had the Scout Hall, uh, Warredale Scout Hall, which is now demolished because they needed that land to put the Mm -hmm. the train line under. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had to find somewhere to go. So we found a little spot alongside the RSL and we've got probably 200 members, but we only see about 100. Um, But as we're all ageing and we've got the sign up now because I'm in charge of putting the sign up and that's going up in a couple of weeks, I'm sure somewhere down the track, because it's on Marion land, on uh, council land. This is so the younger veterans come along. We need you to come and take over. We're all in our seventies, and we need that younger generation to come along to our uh, hall and start integrating, because in a few years' time, I'm afraid it might just be a bingo hall, mm. and we wouldn't like to see that. It's all military at the moment. Uh, and we've got our precious cross up there and, uh, you know, we we just love it so much. And we've got a great president at the moment. It's
0: great, great that you can provide that for some yeah. shared experience. Yeah.
2: and well, We well, all share the experiences but we don't dwell on it. Yeah, I might yeah. say yeah. to you something about Vietnam, that's all, and it's finished. Mm. We don't dwell on it.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, Phil, thank you so much mm. for sharing those stories with us. You've certainly had an adventurous life starting yeah. right back at the beginning yeah. and to, to share. I know there's always more to share, oh, but, uh, but thank team. you for just uh, skimming the surface. Uh, yeah. You've given us lots to think about and, uh, yeah. and, and to look up as yeah. well, uh, some great history.
2: Yeah. Thank you. This... Thanks for having
0: me.
1: It has been wonderful. Um, so this has been Life Bursts with Matt and Sarah. You can catch us wherever you get your podcasts from and on Facebook and YouTube and community radio and television as well. I'm Sarah.
0: I'm Matt. Thanks for sharing the journey with us.
3: Life Bursts is hosted by Matthew Karat and Sarah Freeman with production by Reese Jarrett and Kay Hoshraw Ozartigan. For more episodes of Life Bursts, go to rawcut.com.au. This is a Raw Cut production.